We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Writer, actor and comedian Nigel Planer burst onto the live comedy scene following penning a satirical play about the school with fellow pupil Stephen Polyakov. Becoming founding member of the iconic comedy store in 1979, Planer pioneered the entertainment revolution of alternative comedy and in 1982 secured the part of the bohemian vegan Neil in Ben Alton and Lise Mayer's surreal flat-based sitcom The Young Ones, alongside fellow comedians Rick Merrill and Adrian Edmondson. This was followed by a reunion of the same cast in Ben Alton's satirical sitcom Filthy Rich and Catflap, where Planer was cast as the flamboyant showbiz agent Richie Rich. Being the understudy for David Essex for the original run of the western version of Evita, offered Planer a taste of the musical theatre world which would become a large part of his career and eventually reunited him with Ben Alton for the award-winning We Will Rock You. I caught up with the evergreen comedy heavyweight to talk heroes, comedy and his recollections on an unprecedented career in British comedy. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nigel Planer. Right. So, firstly... One of the striking things about your early career is that you collaborated on a play with the great Stephen Polakoff. Was there anything about the young writer that made you think he would go on to being the formidable force in film and television, which he is today? And how did this give you grounding in drama, which you were able to build on throughout your career? Well, um, there was was everything to say he was going to go on to great things because... He was completely obsessive even then. He'd written a novel, which I probably still even have a copy of, handwritten when he was God knows how young, and he'd written other plays. He was, he was, he just worked so hard at it. And it just seemed that he would definitely, you know, be going somewhere. Um, but he wasn't that funny. And so I thought when we, we, we decided to do this play together, it was like a satire. And uh, I, I kind of felt, anyway, that my contribution was to get the laughs in, to make the characters a bit ridiculous and to give it, a, a, you know, a nice edge. And then after after that, we we formed a, like a... a, 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 a youth theatre company, uh, just putting on his his plays, really. And uh, we did a play called at some theatre club in Euston, which um, Christopher Hampton came to see and commend. And we did another one. I can't remember what the other one was. And then I, my first proper paid acting job was up at the Travis in Edinburgh, doing a play by Stephen called A Day With My Sister. Um, and I was the boyfriend. I wasn't the brother of the girl. I was the, I was the again, I was the sort of idiot um, comedy turn who comes in halfway through. 
But okay. yes, I learned I learned a lot. I mean, he's he's still very very driven and uh, you know works incredibly hard and has a huge output. He reminds me in that sense a bit of Ben Elton, mm. except you know Ben Elton's got lots and lots of and Stephen doesn't have lots and lots of jokes, but um, the the sort of method of what the output is astonishing, yeah. Did you ever want to go in that direction yourself? Uh, what uh, writing plays? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. I avoided it for years, uh, maybe because of uh, uh, Stephen and Ben. You know, I, I kind of thought that's what I'm not going to do. But about twenty years ago, I found myself in a in We Were Rock You in a musical, and I thought I'm not going to have time to write another book. So I started writing plays, and I. I wrote my first play during that, and we it got put on. It went into the West End briefly, um, called On the Sea, about the Sistine Chapel, about two blasterers who get fired by Michelangelo, and they sneak back into the Sistine Chapel to try and chip their bits off <laughs> because they're they're so pissed off with him for being fired. And um, then I wrote a play about. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, which went on to Finbra. And then I've, I've written quite a few plays since then. I just had one on tour of farce this year in the um, in the north, in the Northern Comedy Theatre called All Above Board. And I had a, a one with a British-Asian cast, British-Asian family, based on a Marivaux farce called The Game of Love and Chance. I called it The Game of Love and Chai and modernised it. It's 18th century comedy. And I modernised it to a modern uh, London or Manchester uh, uh, family, uh, British-Asian family. Mm. Hollywood tunes and dancing in it. Yeah, it, was, it was pretty cool. We did that at Tara Theatre. Jatinda Verma put it on oh. at Tara. And it, again, it went on tour. Um, and then eventually I wrote a play with Adrian Edmonton and we took that on tour. It's called Vulcan 7. And we took that on tour ooh, quite recently. I mean, three years ago, four years ago. And we were just about to transfer that. We rewrote it, gave it a new time. Um, it's heading straight towards us is the new type. And we were just, did a reading of it without us acting the part. We got some proper actors. Um, Sam West and Tony Gardner played the roles that we'd we'd originally played. And they did such a good job of it. And it looked like we might be getting into the West End with that play. Um, and then the lockdown happened. We were a, a casualty of the lockdown. Mm-hmm. A lot of plays were, you know. But so I did, yeah, in answer to the question, I, did, I, I eventually got around to it at the age of about 50. I got around to quite, you know, taking playwriting pretty seriously really, and had, you know, t- done, made quite a few. Yeah. 
So, second question. You arrived on the comedy scene right at the very beginning of the alternative comedy revolution. How did the socio-economic and political climate help with this subtle shift in entertainment? Could you repeat the last bit? How did the what? How did the socio-economic and political climate help with the subtle shift in entertainment? That's an interesting question. Um, Because I've often had the theory, you know, there was a lot of thatch, anti Thatch, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. Ben Elton did a lot of Thatcher material. We used it as a joke, and yeah, was how do you t- take that, Mrs. Thatcher? You know, and there was a there was a lot. We did a lot of sort of the minor strike gigs and uh, etc. But I've always had a kind of pet theory that the actually the the alternative comedians were sort of shining examples of Thatcherism because they sort of a paradoxically comedy before that was, was uh, certain organized uh, along certain lines. And then suddenly some completely independent people working independently of them, you know, of anything turn into success. And uh, some of them made loads of money became establishment figures and 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 sort of took over so they were they were you know there's a there's an irony there that somebody like median mm. like Ben or like sale would have not come full circle but would have almost been an example to um the you know what they were supposedly fighting against in the first place but I suppose revolution is ever thus, isn't it? It's always, the, always this, how it happens. This is what I want to Alternative comedy. Because the, the people that wrote alternative comedy became part of the establishment. Yeah, quite quickly. Well, I feel, yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know whether whether it was uh, selling out or not. I, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to have had the opportunity to sell out. <laughs> Quite. <happy. laughs> you need to sell out. You need to get, I suppose, uh, to have something to sell and to pay. <laughs> but, but you know it's quite often hard to uh, hard to get paid, especially if you're writing plays. Next one. Don Ward's comedy store was always cited as the birthplace of alternative comedy. How important was this in giving your generation a platform to hone your craft? It, uh, the comedy store was the, like the place. Uh, the beginning of it all, um, we'd all been doing, not just Rick and Aid and Peter Richardson and myself, um, Alexi Sale even, but but also all the other people, Andy De La Tour, that there'd been a huge amount of new work happening for some years through the 70s in fringe theatre. That's where it had gone to, various fringe companies for about maybe even 10 years, but certainly five years. Um, but when the comedy store opened, that seemed to be the magnet for all of those kind of fringe activities to come to the comedy and try and uh, do comedy. So you had, although you had a lot of stand-up, you also had a lot of, I suppose, what in, in those terms in cabaret was what we call speciality acts, Mime artists and when when um, Stuart Lee did his at last the nineteen eighty two show whatever it was uh, a thing at the Festival Hall where he picked his the ones he remembered from his he's a bit younger than me he invited me and Alexi and people to come and play at his um, what's it called his mashup or whatever it's called um. But there were people I'd, I'd forgotten. There was um, the greatest show on legs, and they weren't stand-up comedians. They did a naked balloon dance. And there was that bloke, and I have forgotten his name. I'm sorry. Who who put fireworks up his ass? He put a lit, you know, he lit fireworks up his behind. <laughs> and there was Andrew Bailey, who who was the sort of meek and mild, strange almost like horror movie clown who brought the briefcase on with him and played the harmonic. He was a bit spooky. There was a whole range of acts who weren't, strictly speaking, stand-up comedians who did weird stuff, you know. And and uh, the comedy store allowed all that spectrum of people, whole range, although not so good, has to be said, for women. That, you know, it was still... It was still a bit macho then. Um, when we started the comic strip shortly afterwards, we, we sort of splintered. Um, we took Dawn and Jennifer, French and Saunders, on board. There was Pauline Melville. There were female comedians. But I think they, they had, you know, uh, a harder time. I, I don't think it was... You know, I think there were stag nights out, it, it, like the culture nowadays, and you know they had a they had a tough time. There was one night Alexi wasn't there for some reason, and a, a guest 
compare was needed. And there was a guy in the audience who was one of those comedians on the telly, he had the curly permed hair and the sort of DJ type jacket, he was old school. And he came up and he, he was funny. He's a funny guy. Can't remember his name. And he he did, you know, did us a favor and did the comparing that. And uh one of the people on the, the show was a was a girl, was a woman. And his introduction to her was like just t- totally out of order. Totally um, you know, oh and we've got we've got we've got this act and that act and a, and a woman. You know, like it was a sort of, really? And then when she went off, she didn't do brilliantly, has to be said, but when she went off, he came back on and said, not very funny, but a damn good fuck. <laughs> um, that was his, that was his uh, <laughs> outro. For and that was, we were supposed to be the home of non-sexist, non-racist comedy. We had to be grateful to him because he... We never compared that night, and he was he was funny, but I think it was was a transitional phase, comedy store, and then comic strip. We had Paul in Marvin, we had um, Paola Donizetti, Ruby Wax. The, you know, women. It started to become uh, uh, more inviting, I think, and the audiences started to accept. But in the early days of the comedy store, I think they were just growing out of that 1970s. Yeah. When I in a Jackson. When he interviewed Paul Jackson. Oh, yeah, yeah. He said, he said that when he went to the comedy store. Yeah, there, 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 there's a negative reaction towards BBC. BBC management. Yeah. yeah. Management or, or money? No. Management. Uh, management, yeah, yeah. How do you think people like Paul Jackson helped you get your platform? Oh, completely. Um... There was a reaction against against uh, all the you know big knobs coming in the BBC um, and, and strangely Americans, you know anything that was American. It was like uh, maybe nowadays you just reject 
you know, you're trying to say that we're us and we don't want to have all those things. And the BBC, that's just there, you know, it's just on your shoulder. And, and yet, of course, when Paul Jackson did turn up, there was maybe one or two people who gave him the or the Tony Allen, maybe, who was a who sort of alternative, you know, he was part of the underground press, you know, the magazine, Hit magazine, and that, you know, he was a, considered himself to be, to have an alternative lifestyle even. But most of the comedians were swarming around Paul Jackson like bees to honey, you know, I mean, they, everybody was thinking, give, give us a job, you know, and I be first, choose me, you know, that's, that was, they may have been saying, oh, BBC shit, you know, uh, they, they were uh, crawling over broken glass to get on it, mm. all of them, all of them bar, as I say, one or two, uh, Peter Richardson, was not very impressed by the BBC. He, he wanted to do things his own way. He didn't. He, he. I mean, he and I differed on that. I was, I was as creepy crawly as the rest of them to try and get gig. You know, the BBC. There was a meeting that some of the BBC producers, script editors, called Peter and me in to say they thought we were the most likely to be comedy writers civilized was the use no civilizable that was the word they used out of all the acts you seem to be the most civilizable um you could write material for the bbc and um peter never turned up to the meeting uh probably wisely i don't know i i went because i thought great i'd love to be writing for the you know i'd love to be writing stuff for the bbc um but it wasn't to be, and and you know Peter had his own plans. What I find fascinating about your generation is that although there seemed to be a clear divide between the mainstream old school comedy and alternative comedy, however, in reality there was much reference from your generation towards traditional platforms. Therefore, I wondered who were your comedy heroes growing up. Um, I loved growing up. I loved Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Uh, um, I used to watch. That was the week that it was, and the Frost Report. So I'm 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 quite old. I mean, I remember as well. Not so much the Goons when it was on the radio initially when it was first time because they're not that old. But there was something called the Telly Goons, yeah. which were little puppets yeah. of the goons, uh, which did old goon scripts. And they, they, uh, Ned Seagoon, and and they did all that. And I, I used to love that when I was, I suppose it must have been, yeah, 11, 11 12. I used to go around to a friend's house and watch that. And his, I remember his mum would make us tea and sandwiches and we'd sit and we were allowed to watch that we'd sit and watch the way school <laughs> in and, 1980- sorry yeah go on no carry on i was just trying to think if there are any more that, that, that i admired when i was growing up <gasps> my taste matured <laughs> but, uh, 
What about Monty Python? Yeah. Yeah, them too. Love that. I mean, when did they come out? 70? I can't remember when they came out. I mean, I was older during 76. that. 76, was it? So I was, I was already in my 20s by the time uh, uh, Monty Python came out. Right, next one. In 1982, you secured the role of the Bohemian Neil in the surreal sitcom The Young Ones. What were your first impressions of the role and how do you think The Young Ones helped to move the sitcom forward? Well, I'd been, um, I'd been playing that character, Neil, for about five or six years before the programme. Um, he comes from a show that I wrote with Pete Richins and Peter Richardson uh, called Rank, which we, we'd taken on tour and we'd done at the Roundhouse and then had become part of our act at the, um, at the comedy store, Neil, and he had the guitar and he, he the act. And the, the idea came to us after we'd worked with Paul Jackson on Boom Boom Out of the Lights and the BBC and other channels were coming to the comic strip and the comedy store wanting to develop television and we felt that particularly Rick and myself felt that as stand-up comedians, even sketch comedians, wasn't where our strength was going to be it was in character comedy and so what we were looking around for was an idea where we could do wacky thing but in a sitcom so that we could have a character and my character obviously was the Neil character who I was who was part of the act mm. Rick's Vic and Adrian's character would obviously be something like his dangerous brothers. And Peter's character, because it, it was was to be Peter's was to be Peter used to play a photographer in our act. And or anybody kind of cool and slick. He'd always play the guy who'd come in and go, Give me a plane and I and I mean one with a good movie on, you know, or whatever. He'd be the cool guy. Um <laughs> And so we, we we were sort of pretty committed to the idea that we what we were looking for is a, a sitcom that would also have room for sketches, as it were. And the the first idea was a bit like that Beano house, where each of the acts would be in a different room in this house, and then um, working from that. Rick and Ben and Lisa Mayer came up with the idea. No, they're students, all the young ones. You can have sketches, and and it's those characters living in a house with Alexis band. And that's that that's when the sit was was actually born. That was the situation. Because we hadn't quite got as far as situation before that point. And then they battled to get the BBT to take that on. But it did change. It changed the sitcom 
quite considerably, but I mean, it's a bit of a one-off as well. If you look at sitcoms now, they're yeah, they just carried on. Um, it's a pity they don't do more audience ones these days. Really like those audience ones. Ben did a very good lecture about save sitcom audience sitcom. What is there? There's Mrs. Brown's Boys, Miranda. There's Ben's one, the Shakespeare one. Um, how many other ones have an audience anymore where you can actually see the actors getting the laughs, you know, timing it themselves rather than? Yeah. Working the camp. Mm. I don't know. There's, there's only those three I can think of off the top of my head. The Young Ones was the first sitcom to integrate a variety segment to the fictional world it created. How difficult yeah. was it to play out? How, how difficult was it? What did you say? How difficult was it to play out? Do you mean play out to the audience? Yeah. 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 No, not difficult at all. <laughs> that's, that's what we've been doing in the clubs and on tours. And we were, we were pretty used to audience uh, control and, and that. It was great fun. But how did you go from the drum? How did you go from drama? Drama. Drama. Conception. How easy was it to Switch. Switch between the drama. Yeah. And whatever else going on. Whatever else was going on. Like a band. Like a band. Oh, I see. You don't mean the drama like in sort of the tragedy. You mean the story, like the drama story that was going on in the show, yeah. and then there's a band in your living room. Yeah. Yeah, I just seemed, I don't know, never really thought. That just seemed like the, the that was the thing that made it fun, <laughs> that you're busy doing your sort of, your scene, and then you could say, oh, no, the plot changed, you know. There's a bit at the end of... Um, Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, I think it was there, where the writing was pretty shaky. And at the end of one plot, 
Rick comes out and says, there we are, we've solved, we've solved the plot, and you didn't think we'd do it like that just by being stupid. And that's literally the, the way they resolve the plot. <laughs> it just comes out and says, there we are, we've solved it. <laughs> and it... Because it, <laughs> it was... The plot's leading nowhere. And... Um, Things like that to get away with stuff like that, and only Rick could, I think, pull that off. Um, yeah, yeah, that was the that was the fun was was sort of being real and not real at the same time. The huge popularity of the young ones spawned a comic relief single with Cliff Richard. How difficult was it to maintain character while singing? Well. It's interesting. I mean, I, I was a singer. I'm a singer, and then I'm in character. And actually, that is quite difficult. When I, I did a single of Hole in My Shoe uh, as Neil, and what we found in the studio is that Neil has a specific voice. Like, you know, he, he's got that way. He's got a certain way of talking. And, he, and therefore, you want to sing in his voice. And he probably doesn't sing 100% in tune, you know. And yet, you, if you're listening to a whole record and it's sung in a comedy voice and out of tune, you, it, comedy can ruin the music and music can equally ruin the comedy. So when we were recording it, we tried it with me singing it just me singing it well, and it sounded great, but it didn't sound like Neil. So we then tried it, right, okay, go 100% character. And it sounded 100% character, but, it, but you really wouldn't want to listen to it for three minutes because it was... <laughs> and so it's, it sounds silly, but that's actually getting it just between crap and good yeah. was, was actually quite... Uh, difficult to do and we did several takes mm. where I'm thinking right okay I'll sing it I'll sing it a quarter tone flat now and it'll sound like it's more like Neil and things it was it, it sounds pretentious but um the, there's a battle goes on between music comedy always and you've got to let one of them win one battle then the other the other battle and, and it's quite a delicate balance because music's going to grab your feelings and comedy is trying to always burst things, you know, it's trying to trying to sort of surprise you or, or take the piss really As a founding member of the iconic comic strip looking back, how significant was Peter Richardson to your career? Um, well he was he was very significant, I met him a few years before that, and we we wrote a show together with Pete Richards. We got an Arts Council grant, we put it on tour. I left, I was at drama school and I, I left drama school to be with our uh, group, you know, with the group that Peter and I had formed. Neil came out of it. Lots of the characters who were in the comic strip came out of that show. And when we went to the comedy store, I didn't go on my own. I called, We hadn't seen each other for a few years. I called up Pete and said, come on, I dare you. Let's, let's go and do an act at this 
new place, the comedy store. And being a, he's also a sort of wheeler dealer, producer. So it was him who who took some of the acts from the comedy store, put them into the comic strip. Um, him who tried to get the deal with Channel 4, not always to everyone's delight, you know, because he used to act alone a lot of the time. He doesn't necessarily consult anybody. But, um, yeah, he was absolutely the driving force. <clears throat> I think behind the whole, the whole uh, movement, really, even though he's not, didn't end up in the young it was him who created us as a, as a group who went on to do the young ones, yeah. who could sort of put the glue in what the style, the house style was. So uh, I think it was very, very important. What was your favourite favorite episode? Oh, what was my favourite episode? Oh, uh, I've been asked that loads. Of, uh, I always think it's the last one because I love it when there's a sense of sadness as well in comedies. I really like it when it's tearing you up as well as making you laugh. Mm. And that last episode is really pretty sad. You know, they've been thrown out. They're, not done their exams, they're hopeless. They, it, there's no work for them. They're, you know, they're 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 on the they're on you know their last legs really. And instead of getting depressed, they hijack a bus and get all overexcited and optimistic. And there's something really just just beautifully. Uh, Sad and funny at the same time. They're on that bus going, "Yeah, we're often, we're we're, yeah. we're wide bottomed anarchists," and you know they get, they go nowhere. It's going to crash, and then it does crash. Actually, crash completely over the side of a cliff. And um, there's something there's, there's a lovely sort of pathos in, in that episode. I love that. In 1987, you reunited with the young ones for Filthy Rich and Cat Flap. How difficult was it to portray a new character when faced with the same cast of such a cult show? Well, um, it wasn't wasn't difficult. I was working with Ben Elton on on creating my character. I think it was... I think I tried a bit too hard to say, look, I don't want to play... I want to play a completely different character and everything went into, you know, I'm not going to have, I'm going to have a baldy and a comb over and a beard and I'm going to have a different voice and I'm going to have a, he mustn't be sympathetic, you know, he's not a loser, like, you know, et cetera. I think I worked too hard to try and say, look, I'm not just Neil, you know, I can play another character. Um, I'd have liked, I, I enjoyed doing that though. I'd have liked to have gone on, but it turned into bottom uh, rather than uh, the original cat flap. I think it was probably the right thing to do. There was also a, 
a, a sort of writer's problem in that Filthy Rich and Cat Flat was scripted by Ben again. And Ben had gone on, he'd moved on from it. His heart wasn't that much in it. And there's Rick and Aid was still a double act, and there wasn't any reason why they shouldn't be writing their own show, really. So they, that's what they did. As a writer, you've written an extensive body of work, but in 1996, you teamed up with Robert Llewellyn to write Therapy and How to Avoid It, a guide for the purple. In the age before yeah. mental health awareness, what can people take from this, which might be some use? Oh, well, yeah. It's, um, it's actually quite a useful book and got commended by various psychiatrists. It's a comedy book, Therapy and How to Avoid It. And it was a satire on John Cleese's book, um, Families and How to How to Survive Them. So there was a lot of, you know, books at the time, you know, parks and how to play in them and you know, something and how to do something. The therapy and how to avoid it was a, a, a good joke. And it takes the place of a dialogue, it takes the form of the dialogue between Robert and myself like the John Cleese book does with him and Robin Skinner, actress Robin Skinner. And there's a sort of story in it too, but each chapter um, we describe a different kind of therapy because there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what therapy is and what each different kind of therapy is, you know, between psychoanalysis, psychotherapy dynamic psychodynamic or Reichian or Kleinian or Jungian or Freudian you know there's a a hell of a lot of uh, confusion about and there's no kind of guide to what you're getting into when you sign up to therapy ones are on the national there's not much there's not much of of a of a guidebook on you know, are you, have you just signed up for somebody who believes it should be five times a week for 17 years? Or have you just signed up for somebody who says, I'll give you five sessions to sort yourself out, and if it's not working after five sessions, then forget it. And, and you know, how much is it going to cost? And all, all, all of those sort of questions. And Robert and I set about weaving into our comedy dialogue all that information so that you'd come away from the book knowing more. You'd know what you were letting yourself into. And uh, so it's quite, it's, it's, a, it's a funny story, it's a funny book. But there's, um, yeah, there's quite a lot of info in it. Do you him do you think you would have got a different reaction if you'd released it now? Yeah, I think the people are much more accepted. It was a bit, it was a bit, uh, it wasn't that accepted then. I don't and um, 
we were sort of treading new ground with it, I think. I think it would be, I think people would understand how to use it now. Whereas then there was a certain amount of sort of uh, confusion as to what, what we were talking about, it seemed. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have the amazing opportunity to interview the legendary Galton and Simpson back in 2010. And I know that you starred alongside Paul Merton in 1997 yeah. for the Galton and Simpson Playhouse in an episode entitled, I Told You It's Burt Reynolds. How daunting was it to reprise a role originally portrayed by Roy Barraclough? Um, it wasn't. It wasn't that daunting. It was. It, what was difficult was really being honest. Was sort of drumming up the enthusiasm. I mean, it was enjoyable. It was fun. Everybody in it was funny. Yeah. But it's like doing a cover of, you know, a cover song or, or a remake of a film, you know, one of those big films. You think, well, yeah. it's so well. They did it. These guys did this so well. Um, are we really, is that, you know, do we, A, do we have the right? And are we, we're not going to be as good as, as them, so why are we doing this? Was Is it the back of your mind so you have a bit of sort of self-doubt about doing it which you've got to brush out the way and get on and do it yeah. and I'm sure it was fine I'm sure but there's always that thought of why why are we pretending to be Hancock why not look at Hancock you know what I mean it's a bit and they probably say these were un that, that maybe it was a script that's been lost I mean there is a point to that I suppose if the if the transmission has been lost um, then there's a point to that. There's a point to it, but that's not necessarily. It still felt a, a bit uh, that it was missing something, even if it was a lost script or a never written script. Did you ever make them? Did you ever meet them? Did you ever meet them? Meet uh, Golden Simpson? Yes, I did once. At, at, I can't even remember what the dude was. Some Somebody like an evening with, either an evening with Connolly, an evening with Ben Elton, or one of those sort of things. And they were, I was just briefly introduced. Yeah. Beyond comedy people might be surprised to learn that you were in the original cast for the West End debut of Evita. How did this come about? Um, just like normal, you you hear there's an audition and you go and you audition and you get a recall and you, you have to... I mean, and it still works like that now. I've done lots of musicals since. I've done about 10 years in, in the West End since in musicals. And even at whatever level you're you're at, you, on the whole, you have to meet the American. Yeah. Ones I've done have been mostly American backed. Um, I suppose I had an advantage doing Evita in that I I didn't know anything about musical theatre. It, it didn't really interest me. So I go for the audition with my guitar and, and sing a, a a song, a Robert Palmer song, 
strumming away. Everyone else has got their sheet music and they're all proper, you know, musical projection singers. And I didn't know, I was not daunted that the person I was auditioning for was Hal Prince. It was my first job was for Hal Prince. Um, and in the, the musicals world, that's like God, you know, he's, he, he directed West Side Story, the original. He was the producer of, you, you name one of the really big shows. He's usually had a hand in it. He was, I'm sometimes, you know, he's, he, he was huge in, in musical theatre. But I, I didn't know that. So I didn't go into the audition, um, you know, in fear, particularly. I just thought, oh, well, I'm, you know, it's another person to audition for. And so I, so I sang my song and, and, and didn't, you know, didn't have to put on airs. Because if, you know, if you're auditioning for somebody very important, it does, you know, put the willies up. It's scary. This eventually led to a reunion with Ben Elton for the West End debut of We Will Rock You. As an actor, how different is it to transfer the words from a page to a TV studio or theatre? Yeah, it's different. Um, to to um, TV, you can always go and do it again. You know, on a theatre, you've got a you're building a whole evening's performance. So it's like a long distance run. All your training for it will be like, what am I going to eat? You know, if you were doing a marathon, you've got to build up to it slowly. You've got to know that your system is going to be able to do it. Um, and on, on telly and film, it's different. You know, your staying power to be for film, you've got to be, I'm going to have to be working. 15 hour days or whatever and I might not do anything eight hours so it's a different your mind is in a completely different place but also your your body is for the theatre you you've got to be sort of performance fit so you've got to be trained up you've got to know your whole part and you and you're also aware you're listening to the audience all the time it's, if it's funny, particularly, you're listening out for that. Uh, there's people over on the left there, they like that. The next time there's one like that, I'll pong it over there. They don't like it. There's people there who don't like swear words. That. So, but these what do like swear Blocking all the time with an audience. Who's there? How can you make contact with? And it gives you the energy. The energy is coming off them. But, of course, a camera is a, is a different thing. Yeah. So, and you can't, how do you time it with no audience? Mm. You know how to time it. Which do you like better? Yeah, which do I like better? Mm. Well, these days I prefer the filming, but those are for sort of physical reasons because it's, it's, it's a yeah. lot of work to be 
to be going eight times a week and maybe yeah. around the country, you know. But I am still a bit of a a, a junkie for the for hearing laughter. So I like giving a talk, maybe. You know, I, I, I do give talks or I'll, you know, so I still would crave that. I do, I do really like it. Yeah. Looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? Um, oh, I don't know. Just move on. Keeping going, really. That's about it. Not giving up. Yeah. Because it's, uh, I mean, I'm still, right now, um, uh, I've got a, a book that I've written. It's a, it's a comedy adventure book. And I've decided I've put it on a crowdfunding publisher. And um, it's doing quite well. You see the percentage every day. And I'm on social media all the time trying to, to pledge to fund so that I can, that it'll be published. And um, that seems, you know, don't give up. It's like I've, I've written the book already. I'm, I, want to, I want people to read it. It's, um, it's a time travel adventure story um, where unlike, you know, Doctor Who or whatever, most time travel stories, you, you move in time and space because of the time space in this you just literally through inherited memory can travel in time as if you have like birds can fly south they remember how to fly you can remember how to be here 100 years ago so you'll find yourself 100 years ago so you've got to be careful which underground train you go on because it might not have been built 100 years ago and you might be buried. <laughs> it's, um, it's called Jeremiah Born in Time. And it's about a guy who's finds that he can do this, but he doesn't know why. And he's got to find out why. And he, he, it's to do with his mum, who actually is a fugitive from the future. And she's had him nowadays and brought him here to be safe to this to where we are to the to the 2019 brought him there to be safe might not have been the best year <laughs> at the year she chose um and and she's run off again uh, but cuz she's in trouble in the future um he's inherited the ability but she never told him, so he's he's quite confused. Um, and it takes place mostly in 1910 in in London, and it's on Unbound, and I'm plugging it as much as I can right now. <laughs> but, uh, that, that's uh, that's you know the answer to your question is I'm always most proud of the next thing I'm doing. To yeah. try, you know, just that's the game. If you tell me. If you send the link, you put it in the write-up. Oh, great. Yes, I will. 
I will. I'll do that. Yeah. Apart from time traveling, uh, what's next for Nigel Planer? Um, it's really difficult to say that these days because I just did. I'm in an episode of Diane Morgan's new series, Mandy. Did a little bit of that. Fun. I just did quite a quite a nice big job, which would be on Netflix. But beyond that, they you have nowadays you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement um, before before you do the job. They don't want because of social media. They don't want everybody saying, "Hey, I've just done this. Here's the plot. Here's the story. This is what I look like in it." And then they, you know, they don't like the idea. You have to sign up in, when you sign your contract. You have to say you're not going to tell anybody what it is. Um, so I can't answer that question. Good though, I can tell you that's really good. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Hey. Thank you for uh, being Oh here. no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.